I'd invite you this morning to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 encompasses and includes a prayer from God for his people that my guess, depending on your background, many, many of you are familiar with. Growing up as a kid, uh, especially as a young kid, my family was not, uh, we were not faithful churchgoers. Uh, matter of fact, probably went to maybe a Lutheran or a Catholic church, maybe, maybe once or twice a year. However, there was a particular prayer that I would find myself reciting uh, almost every day, almost every evening before I went to bed. It was a prayer that you have most likely yourself recited at some point, maybe not, but it's a prayer that we have encountered here today in Matthew chapter 6. I think what's interesting about this prayer is that many of us, many of us have repeated it as maybe like a method. It's been a method that we have been taught or has been you know, modeled to us to recite the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You've probably said that in some context before. What's interesting, though, is I don't think and believe that Jesus gave us something to repeat. However, he gave us something to model. And what I mean by that is he gave us a simple prayer that is incredibly profound, but I believe he has given us a prayer that is designed to affect how we think and communicate with God. And my hope is that as we walk through this prayer this week, unpack the contents of it, my hope is that we explore how this prayer shows us how the heavenly will of God can be our earthly reality. Because that's what I believe Jesus is praying for. He is praying and showing us how the heavenly will of God can very much be our earthly reality. So the question I want us to entertain today and to walk through is how do we make us personally, how do and can we make the heavenly will of God be our earthly reality? When we dive into this prayer, I think Jesus shows us three ways to make God's heavenly will our earthly reality. And that first way that he shows us here is to exalt the king. When we start exalting the king, this is the first way that we can make God's heavenly will our earthly reality. Look at verse 9 in your, in your text there on the screen behind me, how Jesus shows us how we exalt the heavenly will of God. He begins and he says, our father in heaven, and he uses a very powerful word, probably one that we don't use too often, and, it's, and he says, hallowed be your name. So I want to begin here just by taking apart each little piece of this phrase. He starts with this, this statement, and he says, our Father. And what's interesting about Jesus using this description of God is that this is not a commonplace way to refer to God, especially in this time of, our, of, of, of religious history. But what Jesus is uncovering is a new way to relate to deity. It's very personal, isn't it? He says, this is our father, the one who belongs to us. 
And notice how he addresses this father. He says, our father, and where does he say this father is located? In heaven. So he's, he's if you will, like he's literally calling our attention upward. We've probably all heard the phrase, like, I look up to that person, right? You've, you've heard that before. And, and usually when we use that phrase, I look up to, it's referring to someone that we maybe really care for, we value, it's an important person in our life, maybe a mentor of sort, an older brother, maybe a dad. There was a man in my life that I looked up to, probably unlike any other uh, I, I've ever, you know, had. His, his name was Alan Benson, and to many of you, you may have no idea who that is. Maybe, maybe you've heard of, or I've mentioned before to you, but Alan Benson was my youth pastor uh, when I was in high school. So my dad passed away at the end of my, or middle of my eighth grade year, and, and Pastor Alan became my youth pastor uh, at this, at the, like that, my ninth grade summer. So very, very early, or very soon after my dad passed, Pastor Alan came into my life. And man, this guy, like, could do no wrong, you know, t- to me. Like, I, I just remember, like, uh, watching, like, everything about him. And-, and-, and this sounds weird, but, I mean, I would watch, like, how he dressed, how he, how he carried himself, what clothes he wore, what car. Like, for-, for-, for the longest time, my, like, my dream car was a 1995 Jeep Grand Cherokee. Now, I realize that may sound ridiculous, but... That was the car that Pastor Allen drove. Like, I, I wanted to be like him. I wanted to, to lead my family like his. I wanted to be a youth pastor like him. This was the guy I look up to. And as a result, when Pastor Allen, you know, when he taught in our Sunday school or our youth group or when he had personal conversations, what he said to me, you know, it, it mattered. When he gave me his thoughts on any particular subject, I would go to his office each week and meet with him. When I met with him, because I was, you know, metaphorically looking up to him, what he said was so important. How he lived was something I wanted to mirror here. Jesus is, is literally pointing our attention, lifting up our heads, and having us look at someone who was unlike any other. This is the God who is in heaven And he's not just any other God because he tells us that this God has a name that is to be respected. And specifically, the word he uses here is hallowed. Now, in antiquity, the name was the name of somebody was was held to be bound up with the person in some way. Meaning that when we have names today, most likely there isn't this great depth of meaning behind your name. Maybe, maybe that is. For my sake, it wasn't. But in this case, when we talk about our Father, the name of God, there is something unique about this name. Specifically, even when you consider the name of Jesus, The name of Jesus meant that God is saving his people. And so when we're considering the name of God, this person in heaven, our father, what I believe Jesus is doing, he is drawing our attention to consider someone who was unlike anyone else. He he has a name that's higher above every other name. He has a name that is to be respected. But I think what's fascinating is that Jesus makes all of that personal by calling him our father. By calling him the one who has a personal, intimate relationship with us, his people. 
Now, why is this significant, and how does this involve exalting the king? Well, when Pastor Allen would tell me, like, hey, Ken, I need you to do this, guess what normally my response was? Yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, when Pastor Allen would, I remember one time it was at a youth event, and he was asking me to go and, 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 and meet these new kids that were there, and I literally ran. I was, I was like, ah, whatever you say, Pastor Benson, and I was set on, on pleasing this man because I looked up to him. I respected him. I wanted to be like him. He was someone I looked up to. I want you to think about this. We have a God in heaven, the creator God, that Jesus reminds us and demonstrates to us in a new way here. This is not a distant, impersonal God. Matter of fact, it's much, much different than that. He's a God that we can look to and say, this is someone who is intimately close to us, someone that we can call our father. I never called Pastor Allen dad. That'd be weird. However, we have a God here that we can call our father. And when we understand who this God is personally to us, but also who this God is in relationship to all of creation, all of a sudden, how we treat what he tells us to do ought to look a little bit different, don't you think? If this is the God who has the name above every other name and we're to respect that name, we're to honor that name, I think essentially what he says to do ought to mean something very, very important to us. This ought to be this ought to be uh, how we live in our relationship to him ought to be the most important thing that we have and consider. And I know that's not something that is new to you here today. But the question I want to ask you is, is this exaltation of God in your life a normal part of how you live? Like, do you consider this this? This God here, our Father in heaven, you consider his ways and his will to be what is your most important priority. And I'm not saying that to like, like demean us here, but this is essentially what Jesus is showing us. If we are to make God's heavenly will our earthly reality, then what the king says ought to be important to us. Exalting the king, living in light of God's will ought to become what is our most important priority. And what's interesting, he says, it's not just exalting the king. It's not just hallowing his name. It's secondly, engaging in his mission. If we are to make God's heavenly will our earthly reality, the second way that we're shown here is to engage in the mission of God. And we find this mission in the form of a request. It says here in verse 10, Jesus makes this prayer to, and he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, Jesus models for us a request to make to God. Now, as a dad of four kids, on any given day, I'm kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know pelted with dozens of questions and requests, right? You know, from, from the moment I get up to the moment I put the kids to bed, they are constantly asking and requesting things. Now, I'm a dad, and I would say I get dozens. So if you're a mom, you know, you, what, times that by like a million? You know, so like as a mother and, and as parents in general, you are constantly having your children asking and requesting things from you. Now, most of those requests 
you know, I, I'm glad to meet. Sometimes I get fatigued, as you probably do as well. But I think what's interesting is that Megan and I are working hard <laughs> to train our kids to not always be asking us for things, right? We're training them to, to kind of live independently and to be able to make decisions on their own and to live lives, you know, without needing, you know, for every little thing, mom and dad. I'm like, Nolan, dude, you don't need me to stand outside the bathroom while you go. You know, like, you can do this on your own. What's interesting about this is, like, when I started thinking about this, can you imagine how many requests or questions God receives each day? You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, think about that. How many questions does God receive each day? And yet, what I find crazy about this is that this entire prayer is essentially filled with questions and requests to God. So, like, where I get fatigued... <laughs> And worn out from Nolan asking me, you know, hundreds of questions each day, or at least it feels like it. God welcomes. God welcomes that. Specifically, though, he asks us, or he, Jesus models for us a request for the kingdom of God to come and God's will to be done. Specifically, he filters that request down to a certain sphere or environment where this is to take place. He says, the kingdom of God come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've talked about this before in, in, in a few different ways about like, what would it look like? It, you know, what would, you know, what would Olsmar look like if, if we, you know, like if, if it looked, like how could Olsmar be if it looked more like heaven than earth, right? What would Tampa Bay look like if it reflected more of heaven than the present earth? And one of the questions I have when I, when I think about this is like, hey, where in scripture can I go to a place to see, you know, what, what could that look like? Like what, what does heaven on earth look like? Naturally, I usually go forward. I look to the book of Revelation and I can see like these pictures of what the future is. But as I was thinking about this, and as I was thinking about how complicated the book of Revelation is, I think there might be a clearer picture for us to consider what this looks like. And it's not turning forward. It's actually turning backwards. You see, in the book of Genesis, starting in chapter 1, we see a world where God says that all that is in that world is what? It's good. There is no sin on that earth. Now, unfortunately, as you follow the story, sin does invade. But what I want us to do here very quickly is to look and evaluate what a life engaged in God's mission would look like. I think there's five things here from Genesis that when we think about engaging in God's mission, what a life lived like this would look like, I think we can find five ways to sum that up. And follow along on the screen behind me. First of all, that life would look meaningful, or excuse me, purposeful. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it's the, the Lord says, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, notice here, have dominion. This is, this is a purpose God is calling his creation into. 
man is to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What's interesting here in this passage is that we learn that God makes man in his likeness. We're created in a way that bears the image of God, and then he immediately gives that created image of his a purpose, and that is to have dominion over the earth, to make something of the world around us. You see, when you go to work or when you go to fulfill the responsibilities that God has called you to, those aren't just like, it's not an accident or it's not a punishment. When we leave our homes each morning, or for many of us, even stay in our homes to engage these responsibilities that God has called us to, to make something of the world, it's a good thing. Work, I hate saying this, it's not a bad four-letter word. It's a good gift from God. You say, how do you know? Look it. It's right, right here in the text. As soon as God makes man his image, he gives him a, a purposeful responsibility to make something of the world. So if we're going to make God's heavenly will our earthly reality, we have to live a life filled with purpose. We have to use our God-given time and talents and treasure to make something of the world. But secondly, it's a life filled with fruitfulness. Life, a life filled with fruitfulness. It says here, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion once again over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God enables us to be physically fruitful. The context here isn't just the intimate relationship between Adam and Eve, but what they put their hands to. The, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the ground. God enables these, this man and this woman to literally be fruitful in their physical relationship, but also in their physical work. What I think is so beautiful about the picture of Scripture, the fruitfulness that God has called us to isn't just merely physical. Look what he says here in Matthew chapter 28 as we think about this now in a different kingdom context. Jesus tells his disciples to go and to essentially be fruitful again, but to go and what? To make disciples. There is another call to fruitfulness in the activity of God's people. It's not just a physical fruitfulness. It's a spiritual fruitfulness as well. So if we're making God's heavenly will our earthly reality, we're living a life with purpose, but we're also seeking to use our God-given abilities physically but now our redeemed, our redeemed person spiritually to also bring fruitfulness upon this earth. It's purposeful. It's fruitful. It's also enjoyable. <laughs> Look what God says in, in, back in Genesis. He says, and God saw that everything he had made. So he's like looking out at his creation. And behold, it was very, say it with me, good. Like, I think because of some of our struggles with just life sometimes, like Megan and I were thinking about this a couple nights ago. You know, right now for us, parenting for children is like, is giving us the business. Like, we just feel like each day, like we're starting each day with like the waters like right here, you know what I'm saying? And it just takes a couple of minutes of Nolan yelling at us about breakfast in the morning for those waters to creep up. 
And, and it's a struggle sometimes to enjoy life. You ever felt that? Like, it's a struggle to enjoy life. I think when we remind ourselves that the life that God has given us, yes, there's difficult circumstances. Yes, there's even the presence of sin. However, what God has made and continues to make is good. And if we can model to others a certain enjoyment in the good gifts of God, we're modeling to those where we live, work, and play what God's heavenly will looks like. He wants us to enjoy the lives he's given us. It's fruitful, it's purposeful, it's enjoyable, but also it is restful. Look at Genesis chapter 2. It says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And this just, this just blows me away. And what does it say that God did after he finished his work? He what? He rested. Did God need to rest? Was it like, was it like, he's like, whoo, well, that was loud. He's like, whoo, I'm tired. I need to take a break. Is that, is that, is that what God was doing? No. He rested from all the work that he had done. God blesses this day of rest, it says. He makes it holy. He separates it from the other six days because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. I want you to consider two other passages with me here to kind of further demonstrate this point. In Mark chapter 2, verse 27, it says, And he said to them, The Sabbath, this day of rest, was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching that the Sabbath is a gift to be used, not, not a law to be lorded over. But the point of it is God made for us a day, a time for us to rest. And this rest isn't just merely physical, even though we desperately need physical. He's also made a Sabbath rest for us spiritually because it says in Hebrews 4, 9 through 10, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So what does all this say? When you take time to rest physically, but also to rest in God spiritually, you are demonstrating to those where you live and work and play God's heavenly will. Now, this is hard for us, isn't it? Resting is not easy, is it? I finally got into the age where now even resting hurts. Like, I wake up sometimes from sleeping, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm sore. Like, like resting is not an easy thing physically. But even spiritually, when we consider what God has called us to, that it's his work that has created our righteousness, it's his work that has prepared a home for us, sometimes we feel like, wait, what do I then do for God? No, that's not what God has called us to. God has called us to rest and to enjoy him. You live in a society that values work and work and work and productivity and more work. Many of you probably go into workspaces every day where people brag about their work and how much time they worked. When you are able to rest, you are demonstrating God's heavenly will as a part of your earthly reality. And this last one is another way we demonstrate this heavenly will of God is when we live life's communally. 
Now, let me qualify what I mean about that in a second. It says in Genesis chapter 2, then the Lord said, it is not good that man should be what? Alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So we know the story where God creates Eve from Adam. But we learn here that isolation is never a healthy thing. Matter of fact, when you fast forward into Acts chapter 2 and you see the kingdom of God start exploding upon this earth, you see people living lives together. So when I mean living lives communally, I'm not necessarily suggesting that we bring all of our groceries and all of our funds and pile it in here and, and distribute it. What I'm suggesting by living lives communally is that we live, life, we live our lives with a very heightened awareness that isolation is not appropriate and good or healthy. And number two, we need other people in our lives. Now, some of you, I know many of you, some of you are strong-willed, you're independent, you know what you want, and you're very comfortable living life in your own lane. But let me suggest to you that this isn't how God has created or designed us. See, how do you know? God himself is not one person. God himself has modeled to us what it looks like to live in community. So if God lives that way, we are then called to live that way. So when we start living purposeful, fruitful, enjoyable, restful, and communal lives, do you know what we demonstrate? The earthly, excuse me, the heavenly will of God in our earthly reality. We're going to take the next three weeks to unpack this a little bit more. Because we're going to look at, in the next three weeks, what the kingdom of God looks like through Scripture. Because I'm going to suggest to you that the kingdom of God, when we're engaging in mission, when we're asking the kingdom of God to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is the fruit of what that looks like. But I want to show you this from Scripture as well, so that you understand the people and the place of God's kingdom is no mere accident, but an intention of God. And so I want us to unpack this. But for our time today, this is the aim of what it looks like to engage in God's mission, to live lives, live lives of purpose and fruitfulness and, in, and enjoying life and rest in, in community. Because if we're making God's heavenly will our earthly reality, we're, we're exalting the king, we're, we're engaging in mission, and finally we're exhibiting faith. We're exhibiting faith specifically in God's provision. Look at this other request that Jesus tells us to ask God. He says to ask God to give us this day our daily bread. I want to read to you here a quote from author Leon Morris. He says, this prayer encourages a continuing dependence on God. It does not create or suggest a situation in which the disciples ask for God for a supply for a lengthy period after which prayer he can go on for some time in forgetfulness of God. He says, it, he, this, the disciples, they depend on God constantly, and this dependence is expressed in this prayer. Now, this is an interesting dynamic for us because my guess is many, if not all of us in here, aren't wondering where we're going to receive food, like what we need for that day as we begin each day. Does that make sense? Like we're not waking up wondering, okay, what clothes am I going to wear today? Where am I going to sleep tonight? What, what food am I going to have? That's, that's not really, the, at least the reality for this church. This reality does exist 
in Pinellas and Hillsborough County for many people, though. Yet, for us, considering that this, this morning, we are brought into a unique tension where we can live our lives, at least we think we can, independently. Because if we go to work, we pay our bills, we do our thing, we can be okay. But think about what living life with that type of mindset is going to lead to. When we think that we got it and that our work can cover it, what is that going to in, uh, inherently do to our dependence upon God? It's going to weaken it, right? If we're thinking that we are sufficient in ourselves to do what we need to do to get by, then inherently our dependence upon God will be equally weakened. I think God allows us, and this is, and this is my, something I've been thinking about, I think God allows us to wrestle with, especially as, as American Christians, I think we encounter maybe not physical difficulties, as much, but emotional difficulties. You ever, you ever struggled with, with fear or like panic or anger or worry? I'm not saying that is how God has created, God has created things, these things to make us uniquely dependent upon him. But just because we have money for physical food or to pay the bills should not mean that we think we're, we can live lives independent of God. There are things struggles, realities that every single day we need God for. We exhibit faith for our, for our daily provision, but we also exhibit faith for our reconciliation. I want to quote Leon Morris again here. I think he makes a great point about this phrase here in verse 12. When Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, Morris says, forgive our debts recognizes that sinning puts people in the wrong with God. So when we sin, we are offending this holy God in heaven. However, when we ask for God to forgive this debt, we're trusting that, that only God can cancel out the offense and pardon it. He goes on to say the offense here is seen as a debt which recognizes that we owe to God our full obedience. When we do not pay it, we are debtors to God, and only he can remit the debt. When we are asking God to forgive us of our sins, to forgive us our debts, we are uniquely stating that only God can give to us what we so desperately need. And the crazy thing is, there might be someone here today who has never experienced the forgiveness of their sins. You see, if you're going to live the life the way God intended you to, it has to include this reconciliation with him. Because every time that you sin, you are offending this holy, unique, sovereign God. And the way Jesus models for us to deal with that is to come to him seeking for his forgiveness. And that forgiveness is what brings us our reconciliation. So if there has never been a time where you have experienced that forgiveness and reconciliation, it's literally going to be impossible for you to fulfill the heart of Jesus's prayer. Yet, the good news is, if you by faith 
put your trust in the work of Jesus, that when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty that you could never pay, you can experience reconciliation with God. You can have forgiveness over your sins. You can live the life that God intended you to live. And not only do we have reconciliation with God, but Jesus models for us how we can have reconciliation with others. It's not just that we're asking God to forgive us our debts, but we're also seeking to have forgiveness with others. You see, this prayer recognizes that we have no right to seek forgiveness for our own sins if we are withholding forgiveness from others. So when we consider experiencing reconciliation with God vertically, Jesus is suggesting that's something that we're seeking horizontally as well. Like, frankly, how can we say we've experienced forgiveness with God, but yet not offer that forgiveness to others? So if, whether, whether, whether you do not understand or enjoy or experience that forgiveness with God, or if you, are, if you are withholding that forgiveness from others, the call here is to experience by faith reconciliation through the forgiveness of your sins and through forgiving others. If this, is not, if this is not being experienced in your life, you are not living the way that God intended you to live. If we're going to make God's heavenly will our earthly reality, it involves exhibiting faith for our reconciliation. And it also includes exhibiting faith through our temptations. Look at verse 13. Jesus says and concludes, And lead us not into temptation, but to what? Deliver us from evil. Lead us not in temptation does not imply don't bring us to the place of temptation or even don't allow us to be tempted. You see, God's spirit has already done both of these with Jesus. Nor does this clause imply God don't tempt us because God has promised to never do that anyway in the book of James. Rather, in light of this most likely Arabic saying, In Jesus' prayer, these words seem best as taken this. Father, don't let us succumb to temptation. Or even more direct, God, don't abandon us to temptation. But my guess, if you're like me, you are experiencing temptation every single day. You think about this. There's, there's temptation to, to compare. One of the biggest struggles for me in starting this church is when I get on social media is when I see friends that are pastors or just get ads that are brought up or, or you know, as I hear about other churches, there is this tendency to compare. Like, is what's happening here as good as that? And that comparison kills My guess is that you face that same reality when you bring up Instagram or Facebook or whatever and you see people on vacations or or getting job promotions or or you name it, there is that threat to compare is my life as good as theirs. You've been there? When you start to, to compare and to consider those particular temptations, it is easy to despair. There's temptations to lust. You know, I find it just unbelievable what, if I just bring up Netflix, what shows are recommended to me. Like, you think about what is on either Netflix or Amazon Prime, 
the, the content that is there, the temptation to see things that we should never see, the temptation to bring our eyes to witnessing acts that were never intended for us to witness, it is, it is, it is a struggle. Temptation to despair. We, we are in a season getting ready uh, in our country for another political presidential election. And, and even just right now what's happening, when you consider the, our, our political landscape, like there's, there's great turmoil that can be surfacing in your heart about what is happening in our country or what could happen. Maybe it's temptation to be angry with your parenting and your parenting relationships or with your children or with your spouse. Like we could spend probably hours just walking through the different temptations we experience. But Jesus is modeling for us a prayer here that when we are walking or in those temptations, to be in communion with God so that our response to those temptations is, God, please don't abandon me here, but he says ultimately to deliver us from evil. And you ask, will he? And the answer is absolutely. So how do you know when you consider even Jesus himself, when he walks into the temptations where he is even confronted by Satan, God does not abandon him. And if God does not abandon Jesus, and if you have found your identity in Jesus Christ, there's a great promise for you. God will not abandon you either. There's no temptation that has come into your life that God has not made a way to escape. He's given you a people and ultimately he's given you the person of Jesus to have exactly what you need to escape any and every temptation you may encounter. And when we exhibit faith to say, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we say, God, forgive us. When we say, God, give us exactly what we need this day. We are exhibiting faith in God's plan. So I want you just in closing today to think about what, what would life look like for us if we made a commitment to exalt the king, to engage in God's mission, and to exhibit faith. Like if we said, God, we want to make your heavenly will our earthly reality. What would we experience? What would life look like? Well, this is just from the text. We would first of all experience the peace of knowing that we're doing God's will. Have you ever asked whether like, like externally or internally, God, am I doing your will or, or what's God's will? Have you ever asked that question before? Like, I feel like I ask that frequently. Or, or certainly I have people ask, Pastor Ken, how do I know if I, I'm doing God's will? Right here. <laughs> He's shown us. When we live this type of life of exalting the king, engaging in mission, and exhibiting faith, we have the peace of knowing we are doing exactly what God wants from us. Like, what greater peace can we have here on this earth outside of knowing that we're doing exactly what God wants? Like, you're going to leave here today and think about countless of decisions that you're going to make this week. But let me remind you and encourage you that if you exalt God, if you engage in his mission, and if you exhibit faith in him, you can have the peace of knowing that you are doing God's will. Secondly, you're going to have your needs provided for. 
Like when we live this life, the promise here is that God is going to give us exactly what we need for each day. Like maybe it's not actually finding money for lunch, but maybe it's having peace in a turmoil or a relationship that you're like, God, will this ever, will this ever be resolved? Maybe it is money. Maybe right now you're wondering, God, I, I don't know if I can pay this upcoming medical bill, and God, only you can provide this. We have the promise. We are invited to ask God to give us exactly what we need each day. We'll experience forgiveness with God and others. This is what Jesus is showing us. We can have right relationships. I don't know about you, but when I'm in like a relational difficulty, I lose sleep at night. Like I go to bed and wake up thinking about that situation. And maybe right now you're like, God, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can ever have peace with that, that, that sister or that brother or that friend or that coworker. When you seek to experience the forgiveness that God offers, the promise is you can know and experience forgiveness. And then ultimately, we would see victory over sin. My guess is that you could be here today with an ongoing, nagging sin in your life that you're like, God, I don't know if I'll ever see victory in this. Maybe... You know, who, who knows what it is, but, you know, maybe, maybe, it's a temp, maybe it's a struggle with lust. Maybe it's a struggle in gossiping of, 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 of maybe, it's, maybe it's an overwhelming struggle with fear. You know, who, who knows? God shows us a plan for you to have victory over sin. Like, these are just, these are just the benefits from we find in these few verses here. Over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack what a life lived like for God and his kingdom would look like. And I'm going to suggest there's so much more than even this. But even wondering what this life would look like just from these what, five verses here, that's the life I want. And that's the life I want from you. I want you to experience the peace from God, having your needs provided from God, experience forgiveness from God and with others, and ultimately having victory over sin. And it is possible. It's attainable. When we exalt the king, when we engage in his mission, and when we exhibit faith. So, like, I, I realize it, it may sound like, man, that seems simple. Yeah, it is. It really is. And this is why it's so important that we understand our need for one another because we need to remind each other of the simplicity of this. Because life is complicated. Things can get challenging. But when we start to live out this prayer that Jesus modeled of exalting the king, of engaging in mission, and of exhibiting faith, we're going to live the life that God designed for us to live. We would make God's heavenly will our earthly reality. That's what blessed people do. <laughs> blessed people live this life. And if you have your identity in Jesus, this is the life that God has called you to. Doesn't that sound good? Like, I mean, like, like knowing that you're doing what God wants you to, doesn't that sound good? Like, I mean, it may not be easy. Like, when I think about this, it, it's going to be tough. <laughs> doesn't that sound good, though? Like, the peace of knowing I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. And if you're wondering, am I doing that or, or can I do it? You have, you have brothers and sisters here who love you. 
You have a God who's a father in heaven who wants to, to lead and to shepherd you. You have everything you need in the presence of his spirit. So as we, over the next three weeks, unpack this further and look what it looks like, explore what it looks like to engage in the kingdom and mission of God, my hope and prayer is that we would walk out of this, these few weeks together ready to make Tampa Bay, the places where we live and work and play, more like heaven. That there would be a little bit of heaven on earth because we as God's people demonstrate God's heavenly will in our earthly, earthly reality. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for what you have done in us and through us. Lord, I'm so grateful that you have given us uh, an everlasting love and that nothing can separate us from that love. I pray that today we would walk closely with you. We would walk uh, closely with one another. And Lord, that your heavenly will would become our earthly reality. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.